Good morning, everyone. Um, I uh, don't know if you noticed or not, but uh, uh, the person next to you, do you, do you happen to notice that they look a whole lot more, a lot chippier today? I don't know if you noticed that. Just go ahead and take a look. Uh, just say, my goodness, you look so more energetic and alert today. Now, you know why that is, don't you? Yeah, it's because they got an extra hour of sleep last night. Some of them haven't figured that out yet because their spouse just turned the clock without them knowing, but uh, they're feeling like a million bucks today. I love the story of the mother who went to wake up her son uh, on a Sunday morning and said it was time to get ready for church, and he put the pillow over his head and said, I'm not going. She said, well, why not? He says, well, I'll give you two reasons. He says, they don't like me, and I really don't like them too much either. And she said, well, son, I'll give you two reasons why I think you should go. You're 55. And you're the pastor. (laughs) Well, lest there be any doubt, I love our church. And I love the first Sunday of Daylight Savings Time because everybody's so alert and chipper. Anyways, would you stand with me as we dedicate our time in the scriptures to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing yourself through the living word your son, Jesus, and also for revealing who you are through the written word, the Bible. I ask, Lord, that you would teach us today what it means to be in relationship with a God who is good and trustworthy. Lord, I'm fully aware that without you, this message is but words, and so I just ask that you would focus our minds, soften and convict our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, you would do in and through me, Lord, what only you can do and communicate only what you can communicate. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, those of you who have attended a family camp type situation uh, down through the years, you may remember a little jingle we used to do at family camp. We kind of shouted to each other. The worship leader would say, God is good. And there would be all the rest that would say all the time, God is good. So let's try it, shall we? God is good. All the time. Very good. Now, I had you say that out loud because I'm wondering, do you believe that God is good? Do you believe he's good all the time? Hmm. You see... I ask that because all of us face trouble or hardship at some point in our lives. In fact, some of us are facing storms right now. Some of us have suffered the tragic loss of a loved one. Or perhaps the loss of our health. Others of us have suffered financial loss or perhaps the loss of a very special relationship. If your life is smooth sailing today, I suggest you fasten your seatbelt because old man trouble may be on his way to your house. And I say that because in John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say you may have trouble. He said you will have trouble. And that's because we live in a broken world, a world that is so far from the way that God intended it to be when he first made it. Now, some troubles come our way because of sin of other people. When people are selfish, when they're slanderous, when when they're dishonest or unforgiving or unfaithful, when they're unkind or unethical or immoral in their behavior, other people are going to get hurt. Other trouble is self-inflicted. If I abuse my physical health by regularly overeating and regularly eating a lot of junk food, or if I drink alcohol to excess, if I smoke, if I take illegal drugs, I will suffer the consequences of that over time. And I really have no one to blame but myself. But there is another kind of trouble that takes place from time to time that seems to come out of nowhere. 
and that we struggle making sense of. Jill Briscoe tells how a personal friend of hers had terrible things done to her when she was just six years old. And the only way that this little girl of six could cope with it was to forget it. And so the horrible memories of what was done to her was pushed out of her mind for years. She grew up. She got married. She got involved in uh, full-time ministry. And it wasn't until the birth of her second child, when a woman's hormones are often all out of whack, that those memories began to surface. And the trauma of those memories hit so hard, she ended up in a mental ward. Jill called her as she was about to be released and asked her how she could pray for her and then followed up with another question, how things were with her and God. And her friend said to her, my picture of God, Jill, at this moment in time is that he's standing there with his hands in his pockets. You see, she was struggling with this idea of the goodness of God. She struggled with how a good God could let this happen to a six-year-old girl. But you see, adults aren't the only one who are angry and struggle with the goodness of God. Children of divorce, children of alcoholics, children of the it's-all-about-me generation and my career generation. There's a lot of angry kids out there. Just talk to the people who work with them. Talk to junior high teachers. Talk to senior high teachers. And they'll tell you that a number of the students that they teach are angry. For many, they are angry at the people they love the most. Many of them are angry at God. Pastor Marlon Viss, he tells the story of working with a family that was going through the proceedings of divorce. And when the settlement was made, the mother called him up and said, you know, I need to talk to you about my eight-year-old daughter. Because she's fighting with everyone. She's fighting with everyone in our home. She's fighting with everyone at school. She's just an angry little girl. Would you mind meeting with her and just talking with her and finding out what's going on inside of her? Well, he agreed to do that. And they went out in the backyard and sat on a swing. And after a period of time, he said, you know, honey, why are you angry? And she says, I don't know. And he says, well, who are you mad at? She didn't answer. In fact, for a long time, she just sat there. And then finally she said, you know, I prayed to God every day about my mom and dad. I asked him to keep them together. And he didn't answer my prayer. You see, even children struggle with the goodness of God. Even children wonder why God at times just seems to stand there with his hands in his pocket. In times of hardship, most of us find ourselves having an issue with God. Job had an issue with God. Almost overnight, he loses all of his children. And then he loses his health. And then his wife tells him to curse God and to die. I mean, things are really going in his direction. And even though Job refuses to lower his view of God, he doesn't understand why God is allowing this to happen to him. And he has all kinds of questions that he wants God to address. In chapter 23, he says, If only I knew where to find God. I would state my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. Job wants to have it out with God. Not exactly a wise choice. And obviously it reveals that all of the stress and the hardship that Job was facing was beginning to affect his judgment. You know, years ago, Michael Vicks, at that time, I believe he was quarterback of the Atlanta Falcons. 
He made a statement that ended up being celebrated by the media as kind of the quote of the year. He was boasting about his talent, and he said, I have two weapons, my arm, my legs, and my brain. I love that. (laughs) But isn't it true that sometimes in our pride, or in the case of Job, sometimes in our pain, we're capable of saying some things that sound pretty absurd and foolish to God. Like Job essentially saying to God, you've got some explaining to do to me. And God says, who are you to question me? You better brace yourself because I've got some questions for you. And God peppers Job with a series of about 70 questions that Job can't answer. And through those questions, he realizes how little he knows about God and how amazingly powerful and all-knowing God is. And in the end, Job is undone by this encounter with God. He repents of his pride and of his presumption. He submits to God's sovereignty. And in Job 42, verse 2, he says, I know, referring to God, he says, I know that you can do all things, that no plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things that I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And I want you to notice that God gives Job no answers to all of his questions. But through this time of suffering, Job actually gets to know God. Hard times often bring us or lead us to God. Or for some of us, take our relationship to a whole new level with God. Job says, my eyes have been opened. Now I know who the Lord is. Before I only knew about him, now I know who he is and who I am in him. And that's all I need. I now know that God is fully aware of all that's going on in my life, that he loves me, that he has my best interests at heart, and that he can be trusted in all things. And that is enough. Job says, knowing God is better than knowing the answers. Therefore, Job would say to you and me, when trouble comes your way, the key to persevering in times of storm, the key to ultimate victory through the storm is found in knowing, seeking and knowing God and having a stubborn faith in God. And so that's what I want to focus on in the rest of this message, helping each of us to grow in our understanding, not only of the sovereignty of God, but the goodness and of the trustworthiness of our God. To begin with, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. He is Lord and King of the universe. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He is everywhere present. He is in control of everything because he created everything. Without God, our universe would literally blow apart. Colossians 1.17 says that he holds the universe together. Without God, we would all be dead. Every breath is a gift from the gracious hand of God. God's sovereignty means that he is fully aware of all that occurs. Nothing misses his eye. Nothing comes to us that doesn't meet his approval. In Matthew 10, verse 29, Jesus said that nothing escapes God's eye, not even a little sparrow that falls to the ground. Nothing will touch you that God does not allow. Even though God gives Satan permission to bring storms into Job's life, he sets limits on what Satan can do to Job. In chapter 1, he tells Satan that he can't touch Job's body. In chapter 2, he tells Satan that he can't touch Job's life. Make no mistake, our God is not frustrated by the power or the shenanigans of Satan. Satan can kick, he can scream, he can roar, but he can't touch us without the permission of God Almighty. Amen? Amen. Friends, our God reigns. 
He reigns. He is in total control. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that God is totally good. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The same Hebrew word for good in this verse is used repeatedly in the Genesis account to describe God's creation. Because God is good, what he created originally was also good. It was reflective of his nature. When he created the heavens of the earth, he said it was good. When he created Adam and Eve, he said his creation was good. It was good because God is good. Now, it was never God's will for sin and for suffering and for death and for disease, deformities and abuse and pain to enter into this world. No, God's will was that this earth would be a paradise. But you see, all of that changed when Adam and Eve exercised the gift of freedom that God gave to them and they chose, they made a decision. To rebel against God. And everything that was good suddenly changed. In Genesis 3.14 it says that as a consequence of their sin, evil entered the cosmos. Resulting not only in a breakdown in their relationship with God, but also a breakdown in their relationship with each other. It also opened up the world to disease and to sickness and natural disasters. Make no mistake, our, uh, our God is not the author of evil. He does not initiate, he does not cause or authorize sin or tempt anyone to sin. His very nature opposes evil and sin. You know, people wonder how a loving God can let people starve. Folks, it is not God's fault that people are starving today. He's given our planet more than enough food to feed everyone. People are starving and needy today because too many people in our world are greedy. If you're angry at God about this or some other injustice that you see in the world, are you willing to do what God did in order to make things right on this planet? God gave his one and only son to bring redemption and freedom to our world. That's how angry and upset he is about sin and injustice and all that's wrong with this world. How angry are you? How angry am I? I mean, are we angry enough to give up a vacation so that we can give to causes that are fighting these things. Depending on our situation, are we prepared even to give up our vacation homes to pour money into causes that are fighting injustice? You see, it's so easy to be armchair critics of God, to pin all the blame on Him, to get His act together, But what about the responsibility that he's entrusted to us? If a person gets drunk, drives his car across the median and sends your friend to an early grave, how can you blame God for that? People say, but God could have stopped the drunk from hitting my friend. Well, yes, he could. However, unless we are prepared to give up our freedom, which is precious to us, our freedom to make choices, we value that greatly. Unless we give God permission to make all of us androids with a special software package that ensures we always make good and right decisions, we need to accept the fact that we live in a broken world, a broken world that God never intended in the first place, but a world where people will sin and people will make evil and short-sighted choices that will hurt not only themselves, but hurt a lot of people around them. Friends, our God is a good guy. Don't blame him for evil, for pain, or disease. He hates these things as much as we do. 
Our God is sovereign. And the Bible says he is also good. Furthermore, the Bible teaches that God allows storms to come our way to accomplish good. God is all about things being good. And so he'll take what was meant for evil and turn it into good if, it, if he can. Of course he can. He's God. In John chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, Don't you realize I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is sitting there saying, Pilate, your very breath is a gift my Father has just given to you. And what he's saying to him here is, if my Father in heaven wouldn't allow you to order my crucifixion, you couldn't. And friends, what that means for us today is, even though God is not the author of evil and suffering. He will allow it to come our way to accomplish good from it, either in us or through us or even for others around us. Whatever calamity or adversity we are in, we can know with confidence that God has a loving and a good purpose for it. I remind you it's precisely because God is good that he set that he is set on making all things right and good and beautiful and just again. Romans 8.28 says, and we, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now this verse is not saying that everything that happens to us is good, because it isn't. Life is not always good. But God is always good. Tim Keller says, God is never malicious in his dealings with us. Whatever he does, he does for our ultimate good. God's purpose is to make us like his son, Jesus. And so if we love God, he will use everything that happens to us in life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to mold us and to polish us and to shape us into the image of Jesus, to give us Christ's compassion, his courage, his patience, his power, his gentleness, his very character. Again, Tim Keller says, if God withholds good things things that you think are good. He does so because he knows they would only be good in the short run. In the long run, from eternity's point of view, they would be terrible for you. On the other hand, God will only allow bad things into your life, things that God knows are bad, in order to cure you of things that could destroy you in the long run. And so, for example, while accumulating wealth for, for, to, to live the good life may feel great in the short term, God knows that it may destroy you in the long term. So here in Romans 8.28, God is not promising us better life circumstances or more money or more power if we love him. Because he knows if we don't hold these things with an open hand, they could destroy us on the long run. He's not promising us better life circumstances as defined by our culture. He's promising us a better life as defined by him. The life of Jesus. In other words, God is promising us in this verse... A life of joy, a life of peace, a life of humility, a life of integrity, a life of nobility, of greatness, of eternal impact for God. He is promising us a life that goes far beyond the 80 or the 90 or the 100 years here on earth, but a life that goes on forever. That's what he's promising us. God is sovereign. He is good. He allows storms to come our way to accomplish good. 
Fourthly, he does not use trouble to punish us. James Byron Smith, he tells the story of how he and his wife were eagerly awaiting the birth of their first child, only to have their doctors tell them at about the eighth month that their daughter had a rare genetic disorder that would likely cause her to die at birth. He says, when we heard that news, both my wife and I felt like we'd been kicked in the stomach repeatedly. It just would not end. One day, a pastor um, that James had known for years um, called him and said, let's go out for lunch together. And his intention, I guess, was to bring some comfort to him. At some point during the meal, the pastor asked James, who sinned? You or your wife? And James said, pardon me, uh, what do you mean? And the pastor said, well, one or both of you must have sinned at some point to have caused this to happen. Do you know somebody else in scripture that received such wonderful comfort from his friends? There's a guy by the name of Job. Had his neighborhood buddies come over, remember? And this was the essence of their view of things. It's this idea that if I'm living right and my spiritual life is good, then God has to bless me. God has to give me the good life with prosperity and with health. If I'm not living right and my spiritual life is bad, then I will suffer punishment and my circumstances will be bad. And so when people are suffering, well-meaning friends often say things like, well, if you just pray with enough fervency and frequency, if you just utter a certain prayer formula, or if you just pray with enough faith, well, then you will be healed. And of course, if you're not healed, then obviously, you know, you've got a real problem. It's your problem. Or some will say your suffering is punishment for sin. You need to figure out what you've done wrong or are doing wrong and repent. Repent and life will go smoothly again. Friends, God does not make us suffer to pay for our sins because those sins have already been paid by Christ on the cross. Amen? Now, Jesus himself rejected this teaching. I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 13. Luke 13. Some people told Jesus about an incident in which soldiers of the Pontius Pilate rushed into the temple and they killed a bunch of innocent people while they were worshiping there and sacrificing there. And Jesus used that example to ask those who were gathered around him, those who were hearing him teach, he used that example to ask them a question. He said, do you think that these Galileans, those who died in that massacre, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered this way? And he answered his own question by saying, I tell you, no. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, and he talks there about 18 innocent people who, I don't know, were eating their lunch or, you know, having a conversation or a small group meeting. I don't know. And a tower fell over and crushed them all and killed them. And he says, do you think that they are more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Is that why this happened to them? And Jesus says, I tell you, no. 
He shuts down this way of thinking. If there's any correlation between sin and punishment, I mean, it would have been easy for him to say, absolutely yes. They had it coming. Now turn over to John, chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus encounters a man who was born blind. And he's asked a question by his disciples. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That he was born blind. And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. James Byron Smith says, Jesus clearly abolished the notion that we get what we deserve. In Matthew 5, verse 45, Jesus said, God makes his son rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is telling an obvious truth. Just as sunshine and rain are given equally to saints and sinners without distinction, so God gives blessings to all without regard to their behavior. Terrible things happen to wonderful people. Wonderful things happen to awful people. Now, make no mistake, if we strive to do good, we may not receive any external reward, but we will have the inner joy and satisfaction of having pleased God and done what is right. On the other hand, those who are selfish and spiteful and mean may never receive any external punishment, but they will experience inner guilt and loneliness and remorse. But we can build a case that sinners are always punished and righteous people are always blessed. At the end of the day, we really don't know why things are the way they are sometimes. Which leads to a fifth principle. We need to trust God even when we don't understand. James Dobson, he tells a story of a young man who, was, who felt called by God to be a missionary doctor. He finishes years of medical school, and then he goes off to serve the sick and the afflicted in a particular third-world country on a missionary salary. Dobson says, you know, this young man doesn't have a selfish bone in his body. He turns his back on all of the potential money that he could make as a medical doctor in the United States. He, he basically leaves his loved ones to serve the least of these. Yet six months later, he contracts a deadly disease and he dies. All of his work, his study, and his preparation is gone. All of his aspirations for the future, gone. All the hopes of his parents and, and of his church for him are gone. How do you make sense of that? That is what Job struggled with, and that is what we struggle with from time to time. We often spend our lives looking for the key that will unlock the mysteries of life that Solomon brings up in Ecclesiastes again and again, only to discover that the keeper of that key, our Lord God, never intends for us to have it, that key. Try as we will, we will never figure it out in this life. But one day we will understand. Those of you who have faced or are facing uh, troubles in your own life or facing storms right now in your life, and from your perspective, God seems to be standing there with his hands in his pocket, and you don't understand why he's not doing anything. The Bible teaches that one day it's all going to become clear. 
One day you will fully understand why, and I believe when you understand why, you will see God was not only just, but that he is good. And even though I don't want to minimize your pain and suffering, our suffering, according to the scriptures, will pale in comparison to what God has in store for us when we get to heaven. The Apostle Paul, he suffered beatings, he suffered shipwrecks, imprisonments, uh, hunger, thirst, homelessness, and in fact, at the end of it all, he was executed. And yet in Romans 8, verse 18, he says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Lee Strobel, he tries to help us understand that with this illustration, which I really enjoyed. He says, suppose that uh, in January 2012, um, the first day of the new year, is the absolute worst day of your life. You go to the dentist for a root canal and halfway through, the freezing wears off and they're out of freezing and so they decide to finish you anyways without it. On the way home, you're in so much pain, you crash your car and you total it. Worse yet, you actually crash into your wife's car in the garage. So you total both your vehicles plus the garage. Your stock market portfolio portfolio takes a nosedive. Your wife gets really sick. Your friend betrays you and spreads false rumors about you. And as a result, you get fired from your job. It is the absolute worst day of your life. January 1, 2012. Aren't you looking forward to that day? But then imagine... Every other day in the year 2012 is absolutely fantastic. On January 2nd, your rich uncle that you didn't even know about decides to give you an inheritance in advance of around $42 million. (laughs) A headhunter calls and offers you uh, your dream job. Time magazine puts you on the cover of their front page under the title Person of the Year. Your first child is born, and it's a boy, and your wife insists that he be named after you. Your marriage is amazing, and it's getting better every day. I mean, the rest of 2012 just keeps getting better and better. Now... It's 2013. And I come up to you and I say to you, hey, how was 2012? What are you going to say to me? You're going to say it was fantastic. Yeah, you know, the first day, January 1, was kind of a killer, filled with a lot of pain and suffering. But man, when you look at the totality of the year, the other 364 days, it was a tremendous year. And folks, that is a picture of heaven. It's not denying the hardship and the pain you're going through in this life. You may face 80 challenging, even painful years on earth, and I sure don't want to gloss over that or minimize that. But after experiencing a trillion or so years of perfect bliss with the Lord in heaven, and someone comes up to you and says, you know, how are you doing? you're going to say it's been unbelievable to be in the presence of God. And the... And the things of earth are going to grow strangely dim. Pastor Galvin Reed, he tells a story of a young man who, who fell down a flight of stairs, shattered his back, when he was just a toddler. And as a result of that fall, this young man has been in pain his entire life and literally has spent years in the hospital. One evening, Galvin heard this young man speak at a conference or some kind of meeting. And at this conference, this young man talked about his love for God, 
talked specifically about the goodness of God, the fairness of God, kind of blew the pastor away. And so Pastor Galvin uh, met with him after and asked him, how old are you? And the young guy said, he said, I'm 17. And he says, how many years have you spent in the hospital? He said, around 13. The pastor was incredulous. And he said to him, are you telling me that after all those years of pain and being in the hospital, you still think good, that that God is good and fair? And the young man smiled and said, God has all of eternity to make it up to me. And the truth of scripture is he will. First Corinthians chapter two, verse nine says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. So now as I wrap up, I want to clarify that this teaching is not calling us to resign ourselves to fate or an attitude that says whatever will be, will be. There is nothing for me to do. God is sovereign. It's all his. Job did not come to a place of resignation here. He came to a place of acceptance of God's sovereignty. And there's a big difference between resignation and acceptance. God doesn't call us to resign to fate. No, he calls us to surrender to him. And to his purposes in all that happens to us. Jill Briscoe points out that resignation says it's all over for me and lies down quietly to an empty universe. Acceptance, she says, rises up to meet God and says, now that you've allowed this to come into my life, Lord, what's next? What do you want me to accomplish through this in me and through me? How do you want me to pray? Who do you want me to pray for? Resignation says, what a waste. Acceptance says, in what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord? How do you want to use me and my circumstances to bring your goodness, to bring your light, to bring your kingdom in heaven to earth. How do you want me to be your hands and your feet? Elizabeth Elliot has said, the Christian accepts suffering and uses it as a springboard, a platform. And she said that after her husband, Jim Elliot, was martyred for Jesus by a tribe of people that he was trying to reach out to. And so what did this young wife do? Oh, she grieved and she mourned. You can be sure of that. But then rather than resigning her life to fate, out of the ashes of that tragedy, she turned to the Lord and she said, in what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord. And she and her friend Marge, the wife of another missionary who was killed next to Jim, the two of them took their daughter's hands and they walked back into that tribe. Only this time they were accepted. They weren't killed. And over time they translated the Bible and in time the whole tribe became followers of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was beaten to a pulp and then he was thrown into prison. And he was chained to palace guards 24 hours a day. One on each side. And yet rather than giving up, he decided to declare his faith like Job and he said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And rather than seeing his circumstances through his own eyes, 
he saw his circumstances through the eyes of God. And he said, you know, I'm not here as a political prisoner. No, I'm here to share Christ with these palace guards. That's why I'm here. I mean, these guards think that I'm chained to them. Hmm. These guys are chained to me. They can't get away from me. They're going to hear the good news of Jesus Christ whether they want to or not. You see, Paul turned his prison into a pulpit. One woman loses a child to a drunk driver and she turns chronically bitter for the rest of her life. Another woman loses a child to a drunk driver and starts a Mothers Against Drunk Drivers ministry to help other people through this. Friends, when hardship and pain comes our way, rather than resigning our lives to fate, God calls us to get up and to say, Lord, how do you want to use me and this mess that I'm facing, this hurt, this pain that I'm struggling with? How do you want to use this to make you visible to those around me? How do you want to make your joy and peace and your righteousness and your compassion and your justice and your grace and your love visible through me? With all of my weakness and with all of my brokenness and with all of my ugly circumstances, because you see, When we are weak, he is strong. He will do things through your weakness he could never do when you think you've got it all together and life is just sailing along smooth. You see, that's living by faith rather than by feelings. You say, Lord, I may not understand this or like this. In fact, it doesn't even feel good at all but I trust you. In what redemptive way can you use this mess, Lord, for your glory? You know, Psalm 18.2 says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. And what the psalmist is saying here is that when nothing makes sense, choose to trust God anyway that he is with you. I remind you of that because there will be times when the words of this message and all that you've read in the scriptures or books on this particular subject will seem empty and hollow to you. And the only thing that will keep you going is a stubborn faith that worships God, trusts him, and simply refuses to give up on him. Nothing else will work. Nothing else will bring relief. It's making a decision to go through the valley with God rather than without Him. I've been there. And many of you have too. And I want to testify to you today that my hope and my trust is built on Christ the solid rock. And my mission in life is to make him visible to everyone that I meet. All other ground is sinking sand. Would you stand for closing prayer? going to ask those who are baptized if you'd make your way up here just maybe stand over here on my left while I pray Heavenly Father I want to thank you again for the story of Job and for helping us to see who you are the all powerful all knowing everywhere present God but also a God who is good and gracious and forgiving thank you Lord for the assurance that you truly do love us and You have our best interests at heart. 
in all things. Lord, one day in heaven, we're going to understand. One day we're going to get this panoramic view and we're going to say, oh, so that's the reason. Look at how it all worked together for good. Look at all the people whose eternal trajectories was impacted by our faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Look at how it glorified God. Oh Lord, it all makes sense now. But right now, Lord, we see through a glass darkly and we don't understand. And so I pray for those who are facing storms that, Lord, you would touch them. And, Lord, that you would heal them in your time and in your way. Lord, you still want us to pray for healing. You still want us to pray for miracles. Lord, I ask, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit, Lord, and that you would still bring healing to your body. Lord, as they wait, I pray that you would give them the faith of Job to say, oh God, I don't know why I'm going through this, but I trust you. Lord, help them through this time. Help them to be faithful to the end. Hold them close. Deepen them and change them, Lord, in whatever way you want to change them through this. Together, Lord, we affirm today that when darkness veils your lovely face, we rest on your unchanging grace. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.